I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Welcome to the Midweek Show, everyone. We're doing this week Chapter 10 of Ivan Sanderson's 1961 book, Abominable Snowman, the Legend Come to Life. This chapter is titled, The East, the Mysterious. Tom, would you like to have a few words? Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank everybody for tuning in for the Midweek Show. And if you like the show, let us know. Click the Like button. If you haven't subscribed already, please do so if you want to hear get future updates from us. And if you want to support the program, you can do so. We've got a link to Patreon in the description. And if you got questions, shoot us a question. Questions at creekdevil.com. We love to answer those. Thank you. All right, folks. Send uh, your comments, questions, whatever you want to send. If you're listening by YouTube in the comments there, if not, email us. And we will address those for this particular episode. So, folks, stand by. This reading is from the book Abominable Snowmen, written by Ivan T. Sanderson and published in 1961. This reading is Chapter 10, entitled The East, The Mysterious. The East has always puzzled everybody in the West. We talk about the Orient, but what really is it? Much more important, what's in it for us? We are now going to make a major hop across an ocean from East Africa to what is commonly called the Orient, and specifically to Southeast Asia. This may look like, and in point of fact is, a long hop spatially, and it may seem doubly exaggerated because we are also going to skip over all that lies between the two points specified, such as Arabia, India, and Ceylon, though they manifestly form sort of stepping stones along this route. This is nevertheless justified on more than one count. First, there is no current ABS Emery to be discussed in those intermediate areas, though there is quite a lot of myths, legends, and folklore, especially in Ceylon. Second, geologists tell us that there was once a great land connection between the two extremes, Africa and Southeast Asia, which they have named Gondwanaland. And it is obvious that lots of primitive animals still living today are represented by different but either comparable or obviously related kinds on the two sides of the Indian Ocean. Whether individual examples of these immigrated from one side to the other, or vice versa, is no concern of ours, but it is certain that there was from very early times such a connection between the two sides of this ocean. A good example is the lorisoid lemurs of Africa and of the Orient. Another is the flightless birds called ratites, including the ostriches, struthio, on the one hand, the emu, dromesius, and the cassowaries, casuarius, on the other. Then again, the great apes are found on both sides, as are different forms of the very specialized leaf monkeys or 
Coloboids, the Guerezas in Africa, the Langurs in the Orient. These each represent different ages at which this land connection existed. Primitive men, and the hominids generally, seem also to straddle this ocean. Whether the land connection still remained above sea level when the most primitive of the latter were evolved, such as the Australopithecines of South Africa and the Pithecanthropines of Indonesia, is not yet known. But it is almost certain that it did not do so when the first races of true man were spread all over both sides, or alternatively passed from one side to the other. These most primitive peoples are today the pygmies, of which there are representatives in forest Africa, on the Indian Ocean, in the Massif on the Malay Peninsula, and in the Philippines. It should be noted that the pygmy people of the west end of New Guinea are now thought to be merely pygmy breeds of the otherwise tall Papuans of that island. These little people have much in common on both sides of the Indian Ocean and they are now thought to constitute a real subspecies of the human race. These pygmies are indeed primitive, but even they say that they were not the first people in the countries they now inhabit, and the Simang of Malaya state that there remain some living representatives of these still earlier people in their country. Malays call these Devil Seke, Hantu Seke, and say that they live in and move about through the trees. An astonishing statement since the Sinoi also readily take to the trees and are highly agile therein. There is evidence that these proto-pygmies, which simply means those who were before the pygmies, once were spread very widely in East Africa, Southern Arabia, India, Ceylon especially, and throughout Malaya and Indonesia. We will find allusions to them cropping up all the way through our story for some time from now on. And we must watch out for them because in this area, i.e. Eastern Orientalia, namely, the whole of that subcontinent apart from India and Ceylon, there is really no clear line of demarcation between fossil subhominids that are known, really primitive men, and what we are calling in this book ABSMs. This is a point that I would like to stress forthwith. On account of that awful expression, the abominable snowmen, and all the fuss that has been made over it in the Himalayas, not only the popular concept of such creatures, but our whole thinking from a purely scientific point of view also is colored by a picture of some mythical exaggeration pounding about on a snowfield, ripping apart yaks or helpless Sherpas. Actually, if one comes to examine the matter more closely, and in its entirety, as we are trying to do in this book, it should be apparent that what we are dealing with is really the whole history, past and present, of the hominids, and the origins of man per se. Frankly, our term ABSM really means hominid other than known kinds of modern man, no more and no less. And it is my firm belief that in due course, the whole business will be lifted clean out of the quote mystery class and simply become a part of physical anthropology. Even if no example of any of the, as it now seems, dozen or so ABSMs is ever caught, I further think it will be found that all which has been reported upon them throughout the world may legitimately be taken into consideration in trying to reconstruct the past history of man, and fill in some of the vast gap in that history that at present lies between little Oreopithecus of the Miocene coal strata of Italy and, say, 
the Bushmen, or the Pygmies. Moreover, it is in this Oriental region that we are going to come closest to the chain of stages that linked, and that still links, those two extremes. Our first port of call in this new region is perhaps one of the oddest, oldest, and from a zoologist's point of view, the most exciting in the world. This is the southwest portion of the great island of Sumatra, and a string of islands off its west coast called the Mentawis. The whole of Sumatra is odd in several respects, and not entirely due to its enormous size, dense forests, comparatively small human population, and virtual neglect throughout history. It, with the foot of the Malay Peninsula, Java, Borneo, and some associated smaller islands, and possibly Palawan, which is usually grouped with the Philippines, forms a zoogeographical sub-area with most special aspects, see map 10. Not only does this sub-area contain elephants, rhinoceroses, tigers, and other mainland Asiatic animals, it has some even odder and more ancient animals. The Malayan tapir, the orangutan, or mia, the siamangs, the tarsiers, and the little, most primitive of all living primates, the pen or feather tails, Tyloceras. Actually, the list even of mammals is extraordinary, and there are here unique birds, reptiles, amphibians, fishes, and invertebrates of all kinds. It is sort of leftover land, to which all manner of creatures have at times of climactic change, crustal shift, or oceanic flooding, retreated. But, within this limited area, there is an even more peculiar sub-sub-area. This is the Mentawi Island chain, and the immediately opposite Barisan Mountains of southern Sumatra. Here, there are absolutely unique and really very strange animals. To exemplify, I need mention only what is called the Mentawi Island's Langur, and the South Pagi Island Pygmy Siamang. The first is not really a Langur monkey at all, but a short-tailed, snub-nosed monkey named Simius concolor that constitutes a genus all by itself and which is completely unlike anything known anywhere else. The pygmy siamang, Brachytentis clossi, is a diminutive ape, classed with the gibbons and standing somewhere between them and the much bigger and more advanced siamang, Symphalangus of mainland Sumatra and Malaya. It seems, in fact, that this bottom bit of Sumatra is a retreat within a retreat, and the animals which retreated there too are really relics. Though continuous with the bow kits and the rest of those of West Sumatra, right up into the Aiken, are coastal. Also, they culminate in the northwest in Mount Marapi, north of Padang, beyond which there is a distinct break. The flora and fauna of the Barasans has more in common with the Mentawis than with the mountains of northern Sumatra. Ingango Island is even more odd. This sort of fossil attic is the headquarters of a group of Oriental ABSMs, and notably one that is called locally the Sadapa, or in Kitchen Melee, the Orang Pendek, Little Man, or Orang Letjo, the Gibbering Man. Here we come to a pretty problem. There is spread all over what is called by zoologists the Malaysian subregion, i.e. that described above as encompassing the foot of the Malay Peninsula, Sumatra, Borneo, and Java. A wealth of folklore concerning not just this Sadapa, 
but also a man-sized ABSM, and in Sumatra, a giant type called very simply and logically the Orang Gadang, or Great Man. This folklore is very specific. In Java, it is buried, and deeply so, in pre-Hindu mythology. That island, having been so highly civilized and so thickly populated for so many millennia, that although there still remain in it some really wild areas, and even relic animals such as a special rhinoceros, any primitive hominid that may have lingered there since the time of Pithecanthropus and Meganthropus, see chapter 16, was long since exterminated. Borneo, on the other hand, has remained very wild and forms a special case. It too has its zoological oddities, like the proboscis monkey, but not apparently even any folk memories of ABSMs, though a very strange story of one such having arrived there not too long ago on a boat as a captive of pirates was published. Sumatra and Malaya proper, on the other hand, are rife with not just hints, but most definite reports of at least three kinds of primitive hominids or ABSMs. The Philippines constitute another zoological sub-area, and the Celebes and their associated islands still another. Both have unique animals, and the latter, though lying on the Australian side of Wallace's line, the great divide between that continent and Asia, has a mixture of marsupial mammals and other typically austral fauna and forms with obvious Asiatic affiliations. Among these are the small black baboon, known as the black ape, Sinopithecus, and two species of a macaque monkey, Morris. Of ABSMs, there are none reported from either of these sub-areas, but there are genuine Negrito pygmies in the Philippines, and there are constant references to, quote, men with tails from there, and especially from the island of Palawan. The whole question of tailed hominids is a sorry subject and has been going on throughout the ages. Many people have attributed tails to their neighbors or more distant foreigners with the sole implication that they were a lowly lot of rascals. Others mistook crude accounts and pictures of monkeys for lowly forms of humans in other lands. Finally, people are sometimes born with fairly decent tails. There was a very nice fellow at school with me who had a three-inch job clothed in reddish-brown, fine hair about an inch long. This is said to be an atavism. This is hardly the right word for it, as it would then be a throwback to the time before either apes or men got started. I show a photograph of a Malayan-Filipino gentleman so equipped at figure 54. Let us then return to Sumatra and investigate the matter of the Sadapa. The existence of wild men in this island has been rumored since ancient times. It was mentioned by Marco Polo, though he also had tails on the brutes and naked ones at that. Its existence was first definitely reported by an Englishman named William Marsden, who was resident at Bencolden on the west coast of Sumatra in 1818. But it was not till this century that definite reports were made by Westerners. As everywhere else, both the veracity of the reporters and the possibility of the existence of any such creatures was heatedly denied by just about everybody who did not reside in Sumatra, and particularly by those who had not even been there. This attitude to the matter was taken to great extremes by the Dutch curator of the museum at Butenzorg in Java, Dr. K. W. Dammerman, 
Most, but not all, scientists followed his example until World War II. Then, when Indonesia gained her independence, there was at first a very noticeable change in opinion, especially as displayed in the Indonesian press. However, the general attitude has reverted to type more recently, so that the present professor of anthropology at the University of Jakarta wrote to my friend Professor Corrado Gini of the Institute International de Sociology in Italy, stating flatly that the Orang Pendek is only a variety of the Orang Kubu, a primitive people, quite human in character, of whom the Indonesian government takes special care. While I am glad to hear of the Indonesian government's special concerns for the Kubu, something that must be somewhat difficult to exercise in political circumstances, I would point out that while Sumatra is Indonesian territory, the Indonesian government is actually Javanese and really knows extremely little about Sumatra. Rather less, in fact, than the Hollanders once did. Also, I am not interested in the Kubu people who have been well known for centuries, but rather in the Orang Gugu. The Kubu are not hairy. The Gugu are said to be, whether they exist or not. As Marsden first clearly pointed out, the Kubu are hairless humans at a primitive stage of culture, but great hunters, and live in the barest sands. The Gugu are not human, were even then very much rarer, and lived in the depths of the montane forest, and had no language. The Malayan peoples of Sumatra called them by various native names, such as Atu, Sedabo, or Sedapa. They often appended their word Pendek or Pendak to these to indicate that they were referring to a small one of two, the other being Gadang, which simply means huge. On the validity of the Sedapa, I cannot offer anything but the accounts as published. That such a creature could exist is not only quite possible, but, I think, almost probable. And especially if the local native and indigenous people say that it does, and the Barisan Mountains area is just the place where ancient forms of hominids might most likely been able to survive. As we shall see, there is no dearth of candidates for the Sadapa among the hominid branch of the family tree. And then, we have the near presence of the Pithecanthropines of Java. Also, the existence of the Malayan tapir, Tapirus indicus, whose sole remaining relatives live in tropical America, shows just how safe a retreat this corner of the world really is. When it comes to available space for any such creatures to live more or less unseen, words almost fail me. I spent many happy months wandering about Sumatra in my youth, accompanied by an Akinese with the very sensible name of Aki as it happened, and all I can say is that its forests put most others in the world to shame, and they seem just to go on and on forever. The known population is comparatively minute, and the amount of country that is opened up is quite minor. Apart from the rivers, the great swamplands are not penetrated at all. The lowland forests are tall and dense, and the montane growth is intolerable. The history of the Sadapa, as far as the Western world is concerned, is due mostly to the researches of Drs. W.C. Osman Hill of the Zoological Society of London and, once again, Bernard Hubelmans of Paris. There were certain Hollanders who somewhat earlier devoted themselves to the pursuit of this matter in Sumatra, 
Notable among these was a Dr. Edward Jacobson, who first brought the subject up in De Tropische Nature, once published in Weltevreden, Java, in an issue of 1917. However, Dr. Jacobson's investigations went back to 1910, and it was under his aegis that some facts collected by Mr. L.C. Westenek, once governor of Sumatra, came to light. The earliest of these is the report of an overseer of an estate who was staking out a newly acquired and large tract of virgin land in the Barisans near a place called Lubuk Salasik. This man left a carefully worded written statement. This was that, at a distance of only 15 yards, he saw, quote, a large creature low on its feet, which ran like a man and was about to cross my path. It was very hairy and it was not an orangutan, but its face was not like an ordinary man's. It silently and gravely gave the men a disagreeable stare, and then ran calmly away. The workers ran faster in the other direction. End quote. The overseer remained where he stood, quite dumbfounded. The significance of this statement centers around the definite statement that the creature was not an orangutan, and that stood on its hind legs and ran on the ground, and that it was, quote, low on its feet, end quote. The latter seems to indicate that it had short legs, which is really another way of saying that it had overly long arms in proportion to its torso and legs. And all this, in turn, emphasizes that it was not an orangutan, an animal that, except when young, cannot even walk on its hind legs alone. Dr. Jacobson became greatly interested in this matter when camping on the slopes of Mount Kaba in the Bokits in early July 1916. Two hunters came to him there one day and said that they had seen a sadapa breaking open a fallen tree at a distance of only some 20 yards from them. It was apparently looking for beetle larvae, a delicacy relished by many peoples the world over. But when it realized that it was being observed, it ran off on its hind legs. Otherwise, this description agreed in every other respect with the traditional one of the Sadapa. It was clothed all over in short black hair. I should point out here, and rather strongly, that the larger Siamang, a really big and sturdy ape, intermediate in many respects between the gibbons and the great apes, though highly adapted for life in the treetops, quite often comes to the ground upon which it runs along on its hind legs, swinging its arms instead of holding them aloft as the gibbons do when running as opposed to just walking. Also, I have myself come across siamangs going meticulously over fallen, rotten logs, collecting the insects that often crowd into their cracks. I owned a wow-wow gibbon, Hylobates molok, during the whole year that I was in Indonesia. It had been raised in a human family, and it traveled all over the Indies with me. I happened to be collecting insects on that trip, and the majority that I obtained were actually found, caught, and then handed carefully to me by this small, anthropoid companion. It used to run ahead on its hind legs in the forest, holding its long chain off the ground with one hand, and upon locating a rotten log, climb aboard and start probing into all the cracks with its long forefinger. He was left-handed, and producing all manner of rare specimens that I simply never could find by myself. It was uncanny, 
as was the manner in which he used to offer me the first and all subsequent ones of the same kind, until I indicated that I had enough specimens. Then he ate the rest. Gibbons may be pongids, but they certainly are, quote, almost human in many respects. The related Siamang is almost more so, and, in fact, the Malays often treat them as such. Later, Dr. Jacobson was shown some tracks of the alleged Sadapa on Mount Kerinchi. These were definitely not those of a gibbon, Siamang, or any other ape, all of which have a widely opposed and very large great toe. It was exactly human, but tiny, very broad, and short. Quite a number of alleged Sadapa footprints have been recorded. These vary rather bewilderingly. In 1958, some plaster casts of some prints were obtained about halfway between the Syak and Kampar rivers by Harry Gilmore. These, however, are almost undoubtedly those of the small Malayan sun bear, Helarctos. This animal stands erect and even walks along, though it never runs, on its hind legs more frequently than any of the other bears. It is about four to five feet tall, is covered in short black hair, and has surprisingly broad shoulders. It may even swing its arms when walking. Also, it has a pale face which, when seen head-on in the poor light of the high forest floor, may give it a startlingly human look. I know. I was nearly scared out of my wits by these animals, standing silently watching me on more than one occasion. The hind footprints left by this animal are nonetheless fairly distinctive, and are not like the drawings, tracings, and casts taken of alleged Sadapa. Like all bears, their toes increase, albeit in this case only slightly, in length, from both sides to the middle toe. They are packed together, not splayed, and claw marks are almost invariably present. The Syak River, moreover, is somewhat out of the range of the Sadapa proper, though there is plenty of tradition about it in those parts. In 1917, according to Westenek, a Mr. Oosting, while in the Bokits, and near the same mountain where Dr. Jacobson had been, when the hunters said they saw a Sadapa, became bushed. He wandered around in circles for several hours, as one invariably does if one gets lost in the high forest. Suddenly, as his account goes, he came upon what he thought was a local man sitting on a log with his back toward him. Overjoyed to see any human being, as one also invariably is when so exhausted, he went forward, but then got a profound shock. I let him tell about it in his own words, as taken from Westenek's account in De Tropiche Nature, and translated by Richard Garnett. This reads, I saw that he had short hair, cut short, I thought, and I suddenly realized that his neck was oddly leathery and extremely filthy. That chap's got a very dirty and wrinkled neck. I said to myself. His body was as large as a medium-sized native's, and he had thick, square shoulders, not sloping at all. The color was not brown, but looked like black earth, a sort of dusty black, more gray than black. He clearly noticed my presence. He did not so much as turn his head, but stood up on his feet. He seemed to be quite tall as I, about five feet nine inches. Then I saw that it was not a man, and I started back, for I was not armed. The creature calmly took several paces, without the least haste, and then, with his ludicrously long arm, 
grasped a sapling which threatened to break under its weight and quietly sprang into a tree, swinging in great leaps alternatively to right and to left. My chief impression was, and still is, what an enormously large beast. It was not an orangutan. I had seen one of these large apes a short time before at Artis, the Amsterdam Zoo. It was more like a monstrously large siamang, but a siamang has long hair, and there was no doubt that it had short hair. I did not see its face, for, indeed, it never once looked at me. Here again, the most obvious suggestion is, just as Mr. Oosting himself says, that the creature was an enormous siamang, perhaps a lone old one somewhat short on hair. That it was more likely an ape than a hominid is also perhaps further impressed upon us by the remark that it had, quote, ludicrously long arms. I do not know what to make of this report, but I certainly wish that the creature had left some footprints. Meantime, there was a Mr. Van Heerwarden timber cruising from the other side, the northeast, of the Barasans in Palembang province, but down in the swamp forests by the coast near the banjo Asin River. In 1918, he spotted two series of tracks on the bank of a small creek in the Moosey River district, one larger than the other, as if of a mother and child, as he remarks. These were perfectly human, but exceedingly small. Later, he discovered that a Mr. Breakers had also found such tracks in the same area. He then started making serious inquiries among and this is of considerable significance in view of the Indonesian government's statement given above, the Kubus. And he found three who had all, but unknown to the others, seen Gugus, i.e. Sadapas or Orang Pendex, in that region. Their descriptions agreed perfectly, in that they were about five feet tall, walked erect, were clothed in black hair that formed a mane, and had prominent teeth. Van Heerwarden later heard that a hunter had found a dead one and tried to carry it back to his village, but its body was much decomposed and the hunter himself died shortly afterward. Another, he learned, was said to have been spotted in a river and surrounded by locals in canoes, but it dived adroitly and escaped. By this time, Mr. Van Heerwarden was convinced that there really was some small hairy hominid in these forests, and he devoted much time to inquiries among the local hunters as to where they were most frequently seen. In time, he was directed to a particular spot and decided to do exactly the right thing, namely, go there, sit down, shut up, and wait. And he appears to have been well rewarded, for unless he is not only a complete but most adept liar, he got an extremely good look at one of the elusive creatures. He tells us that he was wild pig hunting in an area of forest surrounded by rivers named Pulu Rumau in October 1923, and having failed to come up with the sounder, heard, decided to do this quiet sitting, and so went into hiding. For an hour or so, nothing happened, and then something in a tree caught his attention, he says. Then I happened by chance to look round to the left and spotted a slight movement in the small tree that stood alone. By now, it was time for me to be going home, for it was not advisable to journey through such country after sundown. But, all the same, I was tempted out of curiosity to go and see what had caused the movement I had noticed. 
What sort of animal could be in that tree? My first quick look revealed nothing, but after walking around the tree again, I discovered a dark and hairy creature on a branch. The front of its body pressed tightly against the tree. It looked as if it were trying to make itself inconspicuous and felt that it was about to be discovered. It must be a sadapa. Hunters will understand the excitement that possessed me. At first, I merely watched and examined the beast which still clung motionless to the tree. While I kept my gun ready to fire, I tried to attract the sadapa's attention by calling to it, but it would not budge. What was I to do? I could not get help to capture the beast, and as time was running short, I was obliged to tackle it myself. I tried kicking the trunk of the tree without the least result. I laid my gun on the ground and tried to get nearer the animal. I had hardly climbed three or four feet into the tree when the body above me began to move. The creature lifted itself a little from the branch and leant over the side so that I could see then its hair, its forehead, and a pair of eyes which stared at me. Its movements had at first been slow and cautious, but as soon as the Sadapa saw me, the whole situation changed. It became nervous and trembled all over its body. In order to see it better, I slid down onto the ground again. The Sadapa was also hairy on the front of its body. The color there was a little lighter than on the back. The very dark hair on its head fell to just below the shoulder blades or even almost to the waist. It was fairly thick and very shaggy. The lower part of its face seemed to end in more of a point than a man's. This brown face was almost hairless, whilst its forehead seemed to be high rather than low. Its eyebrows were the same color as its hair and were very bushy. The eyes were frankly moving. They were of the darkest color, very lively and like human eyes. The nose was broad, with fairly large nostrils, but in no way clumsy. It reminded me a little of a kaffir's. Its lips were quite ordinary, but the width of its mouth was strikingly wide when open. Its canine showed clearly from time to time as its mouth twitched nervously. They seemed fairly large to me. At all events, they were more developed than a man's. The incisors were regular. The color of the teeth was yellowish-white. Its chin was somewhat receding. For a moment, during a quick movement, I was able to see its right ear, which was exactly like a little human ear. Its hands were slightly hairy on the back. Had it been standing, its arms would have reached to a little above its knees. They were therefore long, but its legs seemed to me rather short. I did not see its feet, but I did see some toes which were shaped in a very normal manner. This specimen was of the female sex and about five feet high. There was nothing repulsive or ugly about its face, nor was it at all ape-like, though the quick nervous movements of its eyes and mouth were very like those of a monkey in distress. I began to walk in a calm and friendly way to the Sadapa, as if I were soothing a frightened dog or horse, but it did not make much difference. When I raised my gun to the little female, I heard a plaintive hoo-hoo, which was at once answered by similar echoes in the forest nearby. I laid down my gun and climbed into the tree again. I had almost reached the foot of the bough when the Sadapa ran very fast out along the branch, which bent heavily hung on to the end, and then dropped a good ten feet to the ground. I slid hastily back to the ground, but before I could reach my gun again, the beast was almost thirty yards away. It went on running and gave a sort of whistle. 
Many people may think me childish if I say that when I saw its flying hair in the sights, I did not pull the trigger. I suddenly felt that I was going to commit murder. I lifted my gun to my shoulder again, but once more my courage failed me. As far as I could see, its feet were broad and short, but that the sadapa runs with its heels foremost is quite untrue. This has always seemed to me to be a most straightforward report, so it is interesting to note the reception it received when poor Mr. Van Heerwarden finally told of it. Even the equable Huvelmans cannot restrain himself from quoting certain of these expressions by people who were neither there nor, in some cases, had then ever been anywhere near Sumatra, and most notably those of the same Dr. K.W. Dammerman of Boltenzorg. This is so delightful that I herewith reproduce it for your edification and guidance as a glorious example of the sort of rubbish spouted by experts and for which you have to be constantly on the lookout. This savant, after saying no white man except Mr. Van Heerwarden had ever so much as said that he had seen a sadapa, goes on to say this, quote, But this writer is almost too exact in his description of the animal, so it does not seem impossible that the incident was either based on his imagination, author's note, that he was a liar, or that he has written it strongly impressed by the stories about the Orang Pindek. But even while admitting the general truth of the story, i.e. not daring to say that he was a liar, again author's note, would it not be more likely that the animal in question was an orangutan? End quote. No, it would not. I am wondering if Dr. Dam, Merman, knew any zoology. I can hardly credit it. This is by far the most complete account of the Sadapa, but it was by no means the last. The matter has been going on ever since, and plenty of people, both native and foreign, have said that they have seen the creatures. There were also other events. In 1927, one was said to have been caught in a tiger trap, and once again the irrepressible Dr. Dammerman gets into the act, this time as serological blood and trichological hair expert, but without any better results. In fact, he becomes quite blathering, for, of some blood and hair found in this trap, he stated that, quote, it was impossible to obtain any results with regard to the hair. This is indeed plausible, as identification of hairs is not easy, author's note. But the blood pointed faintly to human origin, emphasis mine. However, we may not accept for a fact that the blood found came from the escaped animal. It is quite possible that it came from some native who had injured himself while handling the trap. End quote. I may just point out here that if you have a large enough specimen for any analysis, there is no question as to whether it is human or not, so that it cannot, quote, point faintly, end quote, to anything. Secondly, the natives of that area are Malays, of the mongoloid branch of humanity, who have no body hair but most distinctive head hair. Thirdly, who said that an animal had been caught in the trap? At this point, words do fail me. Our principal trouble with the Sadapa is that not only has there been a great deal of double talk of this nature on the one hand, but that, on the other, 
there have been not a few obvious and deliberate hoaxes. The worst occurred in 1932, when local newsmen in Sumatra attributed the shooting of a mother Sadapa and the taking of its infant to the much-respected local dignitary, the Raja of Rokan. The world press went a bit mad about this, but only a little local inquiry elucidated the fact that the Raja had had nothing to do with the incident, though he had for some time been interested in the matter and had offered certain inducements to anybody who could produce definite evidence of the existence of these beings, but that two hunters had produced a, quote, baby Sadapa. Dammerman said that it was a mutilated young Socrili, Simnopithecus, although he gave the name of the Javanese species. More reliable sources indicate it to have been a Lutong, Trachypithecus. This was said to be dead, about 17 inches long, with a skin the color of an orang blunda, or white man, and naked, but for a thick topknot, said, quote, baby, was obtained by purchase and sent to the same Dr. Dammerman, who was able actually to demonstrate for once its complete lack of authenticity. It turned out to be a young monkey of the genus of the known presbytus, or the leaf monkeys, that had been shaved, had its long tail cut off, and its skull crushed and face remodeled with bits of wood inserted under the skin of the nose to make it look more human. This making of incubi is an age-old practice in Sumatra, having been mentioned by Marco Polo, and being one of the principal sources of those horrible little homunculi that were exhibited at museums and displays of curios in Europe from the 17th to the 19th centuries. These were monkeys' dried bodies, to which were sewn all manner of unpleasant heads and appendicularia, and which were sold to sailors. It is possible, therefore, that the very strange affair of the Sindai of 1957 may have had a similar origin. This began with an international wire service story that some form of subhuman had been captured in southern Sumatra. This was said to be a young female, about 17 years old, Sendai, which it was implied was a rare something, well known to the natives and which was considered very important by them. It was hinted, or rather queried, that this might be the first real example of a quote missing link yet caught. This report came out of Palembang, just when a local revolution was in full swing in that area. News from those parts thereafter tended to be somewhat unreliable and garbled. I have definite statements about this Sendai teenager, stating that it was clothed in short, fine, pure white hair, and had no tail, walked on its, her, hind legs, and in every other way behaved like a tiny human being, but apparently had no speech and ate only raw foods. It was then stated that it had been shipped to Java for, quote, examination by leading scientists, end quote. And that, frankly, is the last that was ever heard of it. It was also said to have been taken to Palembang, en route. The only thing I can add to this bizarre news story is that there is a form of colloboid monkey named the Simpai, or banded leaf monkey, presbytist to zoologists. As far as I'm concerned, therefore, and in the meantime, I preserve not a little restraint in trying to assess the matter. I feel that there are sufficient reports that look genuine enough to warrant a lively interest in the affair, but there is the presence of the little, sometimes bipedal, Malayan sunbear, and of the Siamangs. 
Both certainly muddle the issue. Yet, the thing has been going on too long, and I only wish that I had the opportunity to talk at length to the local people. As I have had the privilege of doing in so many other countries, even in a debased form of kitchen melee, so that I could have assessed for myself the depth of the sincerity, the position that they assigned to it in the general scheme of things, and could have learned some more details about their notion of it from a biologist's point of view. Biologists can ask the damnedest questions. Traveling on to the mainland of Malaya, we encounter quite a different and in many ways exactly contrary state of affairs. Here, the actual reports are extremely limited, the local native knowledge is very extensive, and the creatures concerned could not possibly be mistaken for any of the local fauna. This is what has so stimulated even the natural skeptics, and has been the cause of the British Army being called out on two occasions to try and do something about it. Here, however, we are going to run head-on into the problem of men versus submen that we mentioned above as becoming troublesome in this area. There is a most remarkable book entitled The Pagan Races of the Malay Peninsula by Messrs. W. W. Skiet and C. D. Blagden, published in London in 1906, that is a real eye-opener. This is a solemn, ponderous, and somewhat pompous scientific account of the peoples inhabiting this somewhat limited area done in the painstaking and slightly Germanic style prevalent at the turn of the century. There is nothing excitable about it. It is simply a sort of official statement of the facts, as then known, about the peoples of the area. It makes most astonishing reading. In this book, not only are the Malayan people now settled in the country fully discussed, but the Sakai, i.e. the Sinwa, the strange retiring mountain peoples, are fully examined. And then the Simang, a really primitive Negrito group, the way of life of the last, as herein described, is really hardly human. It should be read in the original. Then, the Santu Sakai, or Devil Sakai, are brought up, and are stated, though admittedly second-hand from the Sakai, the Semang being almost uncommunicable with, to be hairy and definitely not human. The authors then go into the myth, legends, and folklore of the various people, including the little Sinwa, and they dredge up from these the tailed men, men with razor bones on their outer backsides of their forearms, and a larger type that stinks. These are said to be, quote, men, all right, but to be wilder than any of the rest of the lineup. There is a curious tradition about this last type that needs airing. It is reported that they live, and only, in the upper montane mist forests of the higher mountain ranges, both in the boot of the Malay Peninsula and in the next bit north, Vide, Tenasserim, see map 10, and that they customarily stay up there. However, it is likewise reported that they do sometimes come down onto the lowlands and that, at that time, they are highly carnivorous, rapacious, and what is commonly but perhaps inaccurately called cannibalistic, meaning that they catch, kill, and eat humans. Also, and note this, it is absolutely affirmed that these descents occur only after unusually prolonged periods of cloudy weather, or a succession of very rainy and overcast seasons, and that, then, said creatures attack only thin people. This may at first sound absolutely absurd, but I would urge a note of caution. In Norway, perfectly good werewolves 
are on medical record. They are teenagers, and usually males, mentally deficient, with a grotesque growth of head and body hair, often growing right up to the tops of their cheekbones and down to meet their eyebrows. Prognathous jaws, and sometimes even short bowed legs and enlarged irregular teeth. They are nothing more than kids who grew up in the almost perpetually sunless and rainy climate of the upper mountain valleys of the western side of Norway, and before the discovery of the existence of vitamins, had gone into a physical decline due to a lack of what are called the sunshine vitamins, E and its concomitant D. These poor wretches, cast out of the community or having run away due to their abnormalities, sometimes manage to maintain life by hand hunting and gathering, and one and all seem to have an insatiable desire for raw meat. At the same time, they show a very pronounced intolerance to fats of any kind. What they wanted, and apparently needed, was lean meat and entrails. We may now reconsider the status, condition, and the sometime plight of the race of hominids, driven way back up into the upper montane forests in an equatorial region, Deprived of many of the foods to which they had formerly been accustomed and to which they had been evolved, they did the best they could. But, when the climate continued in such a manner that some of the few essentials that they needed did not flower or seed, their whole metabolism went haywire. To counterbalance this, their bodies demanded that they do something, so, overcoming their natural racial fear, they descended upon their old homelands looking for what they needed, i.e., what we call red meat. And to take this to this end, let us say that fats nauseating them, they picked the lean, and what easier than thin people. This is one of the most abstruse niches in all ABSMery, but it has intrigued me for years. Anybody can make up any kind of story, but why anything which sounds to us so utterly bizarre? There ought to be a reason. There may be others and many of them, but in the meantime, this one could make sense. Yet, these ultra-primitive humans, or subhumans, or other even more lowly forms of hominids, do not seem to be the only conundrums in this small but extremely esoteric area. Maybe they are the, quote, stinking ones. Maybe they are something else. Nevertheless, the former turned up in a very definite manner in 1953, and so concretely so, and so many times in rapid succession, that not only the benighted natives, but the European overseers, the local militia, the museum authorities, and even the government itself became apprised of the matter and lent a hand. This is really a rather unusual turnout in ABS Emory. It now transpires that just the same sort of thing has been going on throughout Peninsular Malaya a few miles back from a few main roads since way back. These incidents had been either not reported, reported but not listened to, disbelieved, ridiculed, or actually suppressed, and perhaps latterly because of communist guerrilla activities. However, this one got out, and, as the colloquialism goes, but good. Looking over what published accounts of this incident there are, a really extraordinary number of quite baffling things come to light. I would say that this too is a classic example of what happens when a good case of ABS Emory or any other matter that is not at present accepted occurs. But first let me give the facts as reported chronologically. It appears that on Christmas Day 1953 
a young Chinese girl by the name of Wang Yi Moi was engaged tapping rubber trees on an estate run by a Scot named Mr. G. M. Brown in the reserve that is variously the Trolloc, Trolloc, or Trolek in South Perak State, Northern Malaya. According to her account, she felt a hand placed lightly on her shoulder and turning around, was confronted by a most revolting female. This poor character wore, according to Moy, only an abbreviated loincloth of bark, was covered with hair, had a white, i.e. caucasoid-type skin, long black head hair, and a mustache, and she stank as if of an animal. Half hysterical, Moy fled for the compound, but not before spotting two somewhat similar types which she said were males, no loincloths, standing in the shade of some trees by a nearby river. These, she said, had mustaches hanging down to their waists. Up till this point, the account is fairly rational, even including Moy's addendum to the effect that the female grinned and showed long nasty fangs in what she, Moy, seems to have considered, despite her panic, to have been a friendly gesture. After this report, everybody became slightly insane. Analyzing all the published reports that I can lay my hands on, it seems that this Mr. Brown immediately called up security forces, local headquarters, there being a continuing communist emergency in the whole area. And in response, a posse of the Malayan security guard was dispatched immediately under the leadership of one Corporal Talib, who seems to have been an extremely intelligent and also sensible man. He immediately deployed his forces and made search of the estate, in due course coming to the river mentioned by Moy, and spotting three just such hairy types on its banks. However, upon bringing his platoon's arms to the ready, said creatures dived into the river, swam underwater, emerged on the far bank, and forthwith vanished into the jungle. Subsequent to this, the only concrete facts in the case are that a Hindu-Indian worker named Appa Isami, on the same estate, the next day, also while squatting to shave the bark to bring on the flow of a rubber latex, was suddenly encircled by a pair of hairy arms. He became completely panic-stricken, broke loose, headed for the compound, but fell down in a dead faint on the way. As he revived, the same trio were nearby and laughing at his discomfiture. He admitted this. That same day, a patrol of Corporal Talib's guard again spotted the trio on the same riverbank. That is all we have, apart from a few further anatomical details of the creatures given in retrospect by the various witnesses. Then, however, the experts and other non-present commentators got into the act, and they provided the international wire services with some pretty interesting material. All kinds of previously unheard of official departments came to light, such as that of the Aborigines at Kuala Lumpur, the Federation's Department of Museums and Aboriginal Research, and even Radio Malaya in the person of its assistant director, one Mr. Tony Burnish. These people made various suggestions. They ridiculed an idea put forward some years before, when an almost exactly similar incident had occurred, that the creatures seen were AWOL Japanese soldiers, tired of the war, and who had managed to survive life in the jungle, though they did dredge up the old one about having, quote, white skins because they had lived in the dim light of the jungle so long, end quote. 
This is, of course, rubbish, though it is true that a white man will get a lot whiter in such an environment. But some people came up with some really startling ideas. Most prevalent were hints that these things could be, or might have been, primitive humans trying to get away from British aerial bombing or flooding of their jungle abodes. Or, again, that they might be descendants of a race of hairy aborigines who, according to old legends, once roamed the forests of northern Malaya. What I would like to ask is, what had the Department of Aboriginal Affairs been up to prior to this astonishing suggestion, and why had they not turned up some evidence, other than that of Messrs. Skeet and Blagden, of the necessity for protecting them? Also, as that excellent radio person, Tony Burnish, is alleged to have said, this could be, quote, one of the most valuable anthropological discoveries for years, end quote. Actually, it would have been the greatest of all times. It is really rather remarkable that nothing was finally done about it. Experts of the same Department of Museums, etc., did state that they were trying to organize an expedition, and they made a statement. Statements are always good, and they are often good for a laugh. This one was a near classic. It stated, 1. The creatures apparently had seen rifles because they fled when a security force corporal raised his rifle. Some of the, quote, things jumped in the river and swam away. Another ran into the jungle. 2. Their light skin probably indicates they have lived for years in the dark, overgrown Malayan jungles where sunlight rarely penetrates. 3. They recognized a crop of tapioca on one estate as food, pulling up roots and munching. 4. They spoke a language that was clearly not Chinese or Malayan, but more of a series of guttural grunts. And this, mind you, from persons who were not only scientists and experts, but officials. We stand amazed, but we make certain notes and reservations. The number of ABSMs that jumped into the river has now changed from all to some. They are now alleged to have pulled tapioca roots and eaten them. They had a language? I cannot find any of these facts in the original reports of the Christmas 1953 case, but they do indeed appear in earlier cases, and in other parts of Malaya. In fact, it appears quite obvious from these latter that there had been quite a lot more information on this unpleasant subject in the files of the Department of Museums, etc., long before this time. The most outstanding aspect of this case is perhaps the alleged stink of the creatures, as recorded by all witnesses who were near enough to them, and included in similar statements that emerged later about others, reported to have raided crops in different parts of Malaya. This single fact is exactly in accord with the age-old statements of the locals about such creatures. It is also in accord with some of the statements of the Amerins about their large ABSMs in Canada and in the northwestern United States. It accords, too, with remarks passed about them almost casually by Kurds, Sinkianese, Mongolians, and others. Apart from this, the fangs, hairiness of body, but ultra-long hairedness of face and head, the suggestion of primitive clothing, and the general come-hitherness of these creatures speaks a great deal. It is interesting to note, in this matter of a powerful stench exuded by ABSMs, that when the last of the Mau Mau leaders, Dedan Kamathi, was finally tracked down and captured along with some of his men in Kenya, not only the white men present, 
but the local natives, the same people as Kamathi, agreed that to smell the band was so sickening as almost to prevent handling of the captives. This is more odd because any real, quote, bushman, as opposed to bushman, never washes, though of course he may bathe when in the forest simply because by so doing, and especially with soap, he removes all the natural oils from his skin, and these oils are among the most powerful insect repellents and antifungus spore deterrents known. And this goes for white men who really know the forest and have to work therein for periods. It is the sweat itself that causes the smell, and this by going putrid in clothing, so that a real bushwhacker changes his clothes at least three times during the 24 hours. Kimathi's gang were untanned animal skins. So did the mustached man ABSMs that invaded the Malayan rubber estates. Another fascinating fact appeared from the prolonged Kimathi hunt. This was that Kimathi himself developed a sensitivity, not only of his five major and some 20 now-recognized other senses, but some other unknown attributes so incredibly acute that he became almost unapproachable. It is said that he would awake from sleep on the unauthorized cracking of so much as a single twig at great distances and immediately vanish. Sometimes even his own men just found him gone. If men, and many of Kamathis, and even he himself had not previously been true bushmen, can develop such acute senses in so short a time, how much more may not ABSMs that have for hundreds of millennia been as much of the wild as non-domesticated animals? This is one of my strongest arguments against trying to hunt them. I personally think the idea worthless on this account. It is also one of the reasons why I think that the employment of dogs is the worst idea of all. Dogs are purely artificial animals, as well as being domesticated, and they have an odor which is instantly spotted by any truly wild creature. Then again, there is still another point. It has been observed that animals, such as antelopes, which are born to and used to being hunted, do not even bother to move aside when, for instance, a cheetah rushes a group. Only one animal takes off, and the cheetah goes straight for it. It is often older sick. Also, lions may be seen lying almost back to back with their natural food animals in the daytime. But animals that are not used to being food for other animals are excessively wary. So are the predators themselves. Just try hunting a marten or any other weasel for that matter. ABSMs are neither born to, used to, or prepared to be hunted any more than men are. And they have both some intelligence and the senses of the wild predator to boot. In order to collect one, therefore, methods quite other than hunting must be employed. Personally, I suggest an appeal to their inquisitiveness. It almost never fails. By the accounts, these are no hairy, gibbering monsters, or even pygmies, but man-sized and, at least partly, man-thinking entities, who seemed, above all, to want to make friends. Could it really be that communist hunting, bombing, and general modern military maneuvering since the Japanese invasion had caused some otherwise amiable primitives to move and come looking for handouts? This concludes Chapter 10. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. 
If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.